You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. Welcome to another episode of Speaking Duck here on Never Sleeps Network. I am your host, Alex Ross. I'm here with the always busy and always exciting to talk to Shemez Amlani, restaurateur, public space activist, co-creator of Pedestrian Sunday Kensington, walking and cycling advocacy group from Streets Are For People. Shemez Amlani, welcome to the Never Sleeps Network studios. Thanks, great to be here. It's so great to have you here. We bump into each other all the time and because you're such an accessible person, you are one of the hardest working people in Toronto. You are aware of that, I know. We talk about it all the time. But you're super accessible. Well, and you know, Toronto's a village. You run into people all the time. You can't walk down the street without saying hi to 20 people. It's definitely a large, small town. Yeah. Like, which is interesting because we are on the same, you know, plane as New York as some European cities. And, and I want to talk to you about that because you're not just a restaurateur. You're not just, you know, uh, a cycling and walking advocate. You are such a man about town, you know, and anytime I see you, you are the happiest person interacting with the people. Your restaurant's always full. You know, what advice do you give or what, what can you say about the kind of growth that you've experienced in the 20 plus years you've been in the scene? You know, I'm, I'm just really grateful for how things went for uh, La Palette, for example. Like it was a lark. Me and one of the chefs from Select Bistro, where I worked for many, many years, and my wife pitched in 6,000 bucks a piece and we opened a restaurant. So for 18 grand, we found a little hole in the wall, Chinese takeout in Kensington Market. The rent was 1100 bucks a month. And we figured, okay, let's do this. Let's, uh, we'll drive it into the ground. We'll fail within a year or two. And uh, like, a, like university, we will have learned something about how to actually run a restaurant without going to school for it. We wanted to just do it. And so it's kind of a miracle when you shoot an arrow at the moon and you actually hit it. Here are here we are, 17 years later, that's, and our restaurant's right. thriving, right? It's unbelievable. 2000 is when you made your mark on Kensington. And we're joking because one of our first season episodes, Marco and Steve of Otto's Berlin Donaire, are now yeah. in your location. What is it like seeing, you know, what happens to be one of the more successful newer restaurants be in your old location you know 17 years later how does that feel it's thrilling it's it's amazing to see what those guys are doing and you know honestly like by the time we left there 10 years after we had opened the rent had gone from 1100 to 1500 to 2500 it was by the time we left we it would have been four times four to five times more than when we started and i'm like how can i sell any more for sit down service at a table i figured it's going to be hard for the next restaurant that comes in here to give it a go and these guys are smart and passionate and they came out of the gate guns blazing and and i'm so happy for them and they're 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 an amazing addition to the food scene in toronto so that's an interesting topic because you're so connected to the west end you know with psk you are the bia of uh, queen west uh the business What's the institute in administration? Uh, it's a business improvement area. Improvement area. Yeah, it's it's sort of a thing that was invented in Toronto, where an arm's length body of the city uh, with business owners as an in an area puts a they get to have a tax levy added onto the tax base of an area, and then they get money that they can spend to improve the neighborhood and. Often enough that it gives you clout with the city and the city will match dollars and you can pick projects that if you want to celebrate the heritage of your neighborhood or do streetscaping or things like that, you can do it through this body called the BIA, which has since been exported not just to the rest of Canada, but around the world cities, thousands of cities around the world have BIAs. And this was this was invented here. That's interesting. See, that... I, I never really knew what BIA stood for. And it's funny because once you start meeting the BIAs of Toronto, they're like like you. They're the townspeople, you know, they're the community growers, essentially. And because you have such a connection to Kensington with PSK and being the BIA of Queen West, what is it like looking back? You know, as you said, the rent increases in Toronto just get so exorbitant. 
you know what you know what's your take on that as a bia as someone who's trying to bring more business to psk you know are we pushing out businesses are we you know increasing that fail rate of businesses especially restaurants it's a double-edged sword right you do things to make your neighborhood nicer to make it cleaner to make it cooler and you as a result drive up property values and if you don't have a good landlord then they'll rub their palms together and think about how much more money they can make and uh, you might gentrify yourself out of the equation so like anything else uh, being a business owner you have to keep changing you have to use your imagination never get stuck in your ways uh, creativity is the name of the game and we've watched in the 17 years that I've been open, I've watched so many things happen in the restaurant scene. It's it's fun. It's funny to try and keep up. Like 17 years ago, you wouldn't have customers calling you over to the table to take a picture. That's a thing now, right? We saw all of a sudden, oh, uh, these are share plates and we suggest you get this many for the table. That kind of stuff never used to happen. And now people want to eat mussels and tartare and foie gras like in the same one minute bite in their mouth. Like, <laughs> everyone, the true. eating habits have changed. People take pictures of their food. When we did on Valentine's and we said there's a no cell phone policy in place, it was hard to swallow for a lot of people. I couldn't have imagined that 17 years ago. We've watched fads and trends. People, ramen, 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 ramen. Everyone's talking about ramen. Everyone's talking about ramen fish burgers, tacos. Like, yeah. What's the next thing? What's the next thing? So it's fun to watch these fads. The way people eat has changed over time. And then you see, like when, when we opened, it was kind of a nifty thing. We took a, uh, we opened a French bistro in a in an old Chinese takeout. It took us 13 days to turn the place over from when we got it. And it clearly still looked like a junky little old Chinese takeout, which was cool. And we were lucky enough to do that at the beginning of a time when lots of young people were working for others in known restaurants that had been established for decades, were going out on their own and, and opening small businesses and taking a go at it. It was an exciting time. Now you see uh, very different things happening where a lot of the bigger Bigger restaurants, bigger companies have adopted that meme. So you have great companies that know what they're doing, like King West Food Corp will have several restaurants under their umbrella that each look like they're completely different, independently run restaurants with a different feel, with a different partner chef at the helm and different management team. Uh, so King West Food Corp, for example, runs great places like Jacob's, Buka, Barbuka, formerly The Saint, now La Banane, places Rob like that. Rob Gentili, man. That guy knows what's up. Yeah, smart people. You see little mini empires uh, like Gen Ag, Grant Van Cameron. They, they keep on opening cool, new, successful places that have a lot of uh, interest within them. They take on great local partners. Uh, so, you know, people are passionate, dedicated. And then they have the clout that a landlord would say, okay, I'll give you a lease. But they wouldn't necessarily give an upstart a lease. Uh, they wouldn't have the credibility right out of the gate. But you see these kind of things happening, too, that make me go wow if i tried to open la palette today i don't know if i'd make it right it's a, a lot of uh, young people wanting to get their foot into an establishment and be their own business person uh, might not have the the means anymore to be able to just do it on their own so they need to partner they need to find investors they need to do things like that so it's it's interesting to watch that ever shifting ground of that the moving targets that it takes to to open a successful place i i, I my hat's off to anyone who's still doing it because it's tougher out there than it ever has been oh and you see a lot of the young guns getting in and you know they treat it like it's their child because you know they don't have as many priorities as say somebody who has kids, a family, uh, you know, another business or, or whatever kind of job they're working in, you see these young kids who basically don't take a paycheck. They work hard. Like, again, it's the auto Ber Berlin Donaire guys. It's a yeah. perfect example. You know, they're, you know, barely 30 and they're working, you know, 10 hour, 12 hour days every day without a day off. And it, it, you have to have that drive, you know, you sound like you have a lot of perspective for being in the industry for so long, but also being on both sides. You know, you are a BIA, uh, you run an industry, uh, a business in an industry that does have a not amazing success rate. So it's interesting to know that um, someone like you is successful, not just because, you know, you tried and, and succeeded, but you saw an opportunity, you drove that opportunity 
as far as you could, even changing locations from uh, Kensington Market to Queen West. You know, how did that become the issue where Kensington is like, okay, like La Palette's not working here. Your next move is Queen West. Did you have to think, oh, maybe we were not going to be able to move our business? What happened there? Well, uh, as I mentioned, the rent had gone kind of haywire. The landlord didn't want to re-sign the lease that we had. He wanted me to become responsible for tens of thousands of uh, dollars worth of renovations on a uh, an old, decrepit building. And, you know, the secret to a long life is knowing when it's time to go. It was uh, a fantastic run that we had there for 10 years. Uh, but everyone needs change. Change is exciting. It needed something new. I didn't necessarily, casting a, a, my gaze afield, want to move out to other neighborhoods that I wasn't familiar with. And Queen Street West is the place that I've been hanging out and working and playing for three decades at least. Oh, wow. uh, I got my first restaurant job at Select Bistro right beside the Rivoli when it was on Queen Street. And I used to go to the Cameron house with the, with the fake ID that they never asked for when yeah. I was <laughs> 15, 16 years Where old. The- Kensington BIA uh, Patrick now is the face of the Cameron House in my opinion every time I go and he cards me yeah, it's Patrick no, and, and or we, doesn't card me we were yeah we work really well together on a lot of projects like that too so it's it's a neighborhood that I knew and believe it or not where we are on Queen Street we fondly call it Queen in between it's not quite that gentrified steel and glass uh, neighborhood that we see uh from university to Spadina. It's not quite the old school artsy neighborhood that's uh, further west. So it was a great opportunity. The place that we got, believe it or not, per square foot, it was half the rent of Kensington Market. How's that possible? Yeah, how's that possible? Yeah, it is possible. Uh, And partly... We're very lucky there on Queen West. The silent partner in any business is your landlord. And our landlord's happy to make a living and not a killing. So uh, we have a a great relationship with them. We take care of their place and they're happy to have a hardworking ma and pa store in their in their building, in their heirloom uh, property that they inherited from their parents. They don't want to have a Starbucks who could easily pay several times more. But again, maybe we're going back into that whole gentrification because you see things changing on Queen West as well. We lost the hideout, live music venue there for 10 years, a place of community. Toronto's interesting that way, you know, that... You can be a rock and roller and go catch uh, bands playing at the Bovine Hideout, but you can also come to La Palette and have a fancy steak dinner and seamlessly move between these worlds. I'm that kind of guy. When I travel, you could find me in San Sebastian at a Michelin star restaurant in in the evening and come back in and be at a dirty old man dive bar for for drinks afterwards. And I love that about our city that way, that we move seamlessly through these different worlds. So very important, these live music venues in our city are a cultural heritage that we don't want to lose and we lost the Cameron house uh, sorry we lost uh, the hideout and what's going in there is a uh, Taco Bell Canada's first liquor licensed Taco Bell actually is that actually what's actually happening over yeah there? so you know you get Queen West Vogue magazine called it the second coolest neighborhood in the world you have people that treat it as a catwalk and they show off their fashion. You have people that know that it is a cultural backbone for our city. Kensington Market is its beating heart. And all these parasitic businesses move in and they want to cash in on that cool. But they, in turn, create this terrible feedback loop where they drive up property values. Landlords start to get greedy to the point where they're even speculating on rent and they properties sit empty on Queen West. We've lost Silver Snail, uh, Active Surplus, uh, most recently the Hideout Pages Bookstore. And when you see these properties just sit empty, when we lost Select Bistro on Queen Street, that property sat empty for five years. So how do you do it? How, How, as a restaurant, for example, do you survive under these conditions, right? Uh, Queen West has flagship stores that have mastheads for big corporations. So something like The Gap on Queen West doesn't have to make money. They make all their money elsewhere. Do you and th- offshore landlords speculate on the rents and change the culture of our city. So there's so many things going on, so many forces at play. It's hard to understand what's going on behind the scenes, but you got to keep an eye on it, right? Do you think that 
that um, the reason the hideout closed was maybe a landlord situation, thinking that they can get more. For, it's a quite a large space, including the patio. I would think, why would a Taco Bell end up there other than maybe they can pay those huge, you know, rent prices that the landlord's essentially looking for. But at the same time, I'm thinking a condo was probably more suited for that corner if you think about it i mean condos in general are toronto's bread and butter right now i'm surprised all that land what is being used for a freaking taco bell just with beer like i just don't get it yeah i mean there's there are still rules that protect a building so we can't have a condo tower go up on queen street there are rules around what you can build there the heritage the density i mean we are building a lot of density over towards the lakeshore and you can look at city plans and and see what they're going to be doing there queen street is just on the northern edge of that so we we technically aren't supposed to see condo towers there but you know that brings us to a whole other topic of where i don't know about you i grew up in toronto where we used to all hang out in these uh, and live in artist lofts downtown before downtown living became a thing liberty village you would go to fantastic speaking with live bands and rain would leak through the rusty roofs and there wasn't anyone living there for miles around. We lived in artist lofts and every now and then they'd inspect and you'd have to hide your bed and the water ran rusty. Now everyone wants to live downtown and it's cool. We finally figured out that our automobile-based project of everyone works downtown, shops over here somewhere in some big big mall or big box store and then goes and lives over there and we drive cars in between we figured out that's not working so it's nice that we're trying to introduce density and mixed usage of the downtown core but we're also seeing something happen where culture is being murdered a little bit where residents associations are making noise complaints about long established bars and live music venues that were the very culture the very reason that that part of the city became cool in the first place and they want to kind of homogenize it and bring nice quiet suburban life to the downtown core and i think that's a problem as well and that's why we're worried about losing our live music venues so to say that we want a condo tower on queen street i don't know i lived on queen street for many years and at a certain point it drove me kind of nuts finally i guess i got older i couldn't take the noise and the drunks and the weirdos i still love it there i love to hang out there i run my business there but now i live in the market in Kensington Market, right, in the in the laneway there. So it's a mixed blessing to bring too many residential units onto a street like Queen Street, and then you get cranky neighbors who don't like that people party every day of the week. <laughs> or, you know, when your house band is Lemon Bucket Orchestra and they're playing out <laughs> front on a few summer nights, I, I'm sure that can get, you know, obnoxious to those who aren't into the moment, as it were. I remember some of my favorite moments at La Palette. Uh, we mentioned when you had Brooke Cavanaugh on as a chef, you know, he was a, you know, a 20 something hipster of the scene. And, you know, those who know Brooke would always come by for a drink, for a bite. So it's a sense of community. And of course, Lemon Bucket Orchestra on top of it, you know, this kind of gypsy jazz punk, you know, movement that happens worldwide. Toronto's version of it kind of their starting point and ending point was usually La Palette. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, those kind of exciting moments. It seems like you've been in Toronto for a long time. Did you grow up in Toronto? Were you born in Toronto? I was born in Nairobi in Kenya and came to Toronto when I was five, uh, back in 1975. So of my 37 years, I've uh, of my 47 years, I've spent 37 years in Toronto. When I was a young man, like everyone else, I went to, went to travel and see the world a little bit. So I did spend a year traveling around Europe. Uh, and uh, when I came back, I just couldn't stand it here anymore. So at 20 23, I gave up uh, everything that I owned. I gave away all my earthly possessions and moved to Paris and spent a lot of time uh, in France. Uh, but also, I lived in, in Poland for a while and traveled a lot in all throughout Eastern Europe, got jobs in bars in Germany, Holland, Belgium, uh, spent a year traveling or half a year traveling around India uh, and, and then came home. I thought I was just passing through Toronto, continuing world travels. And uh, that was... 20 years ago. Wow. <laughs> so, how about and, that? Yeah, you've, you've gotten around since, and, and you talk about how you and your wife are, are pretty well-traveled, and the food industry also helps your want to kind of travel. So, w- when you first touch base in uh, France, are you in love with the whole bistro culture? Like, is, this, is there a direct correlation to La Palette and your experiences in Europe? 
Absolutely. The idea was to bring a piece of that uh, European culture here to my hometown of Toronto. And, you know, all that said, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else in the world other than here. There's a lot, of, a lot of strife, a lot of uh, hardship in, in places. We have a pretty good life here. And, and where else, you know, people from France come and say, why, why does a African Indian guy and a Polish Australian <laughs> girl run a French bistro and you have like Balkan gypsy bands playing everyone's drinking Hungarian Palenka and Serbian Rakia what what is this place that only in Toronto could you, could you see something like yeah. that right like you've got you take a look around the room our day manager is from Budapest uh, the night manager is from Dublin uh, we've got people from Russia Spain <laughs> uh, the four corners of the world are all colliding here and making something that is uniquely of Toronto and uh, it would be hard it would be hard to be a small business an entrepreneur in a place like Paris for example which is close to my heart I, I managed and ran a, a little place in, in Paris for a couple of years and it's it, they make it a lot harder and there's also other issues like like racism that uh, that are deeply rooted and deeply problematic in Europe so while I love it there and go visit all the time it'd be tough to live there and yeah. very well said uh, so you get your knowledge of the food industry while you're traveling through Europe. Is this where you got your first taste of? Because you're not a chef. You, you, no, you I, I'm that. front of the house. I'm you're a bartender. F -F -F I'm yeah, bartender by trade. So uh, was that in Europe where you got your first kind of enjoyment, your first taste of, of no, the it, crazy industry? What I call the mothership is Le Select Bistro uh, that I mentioned earlier. That has since moved from Queen Street to Wellington, and it's the good people there that are that adopted me as family, basically. Uh, uh, it's it's through them that I got the passion to do what I do now. In, were you in there? Were you there when Maddie Matheson was there and Rua and Rang, his friend? I had already opened uh, La Palette when Maddie Matheson was there, and in fact, he came to work for us for a short stint uh, uh, before moving on to Odd Fellows and and beyond. Right, Parks and Labor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so no, been friends with him for a long time. He's a great character, and he he was our chef for a That's hot minute as hilarious. well. Hilarious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What are the chances? Yeah, wonderful guy. Well, Toronto's a village, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and a, we'll, we'll keep lending to that. You you know, the fact that so many worlds cross paths in mm. Toronto, you know, it, having you on this show, Speaking Duck, is so much more than just a food conversation we can have. Front of house is something we also, uh, last season I had Asia Sachs on, who's like the front of house queen in Toronto as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So you have to understand that not everything's happening in the kitchen. It's a, it's a relationship between the front of house and back of house. So where, where did you get that first taste of like bartending and management? Was it in Le Select Bistro? And then that's kind of where you're like, I need to run my own show. And then you and your then partner is that where you met? No, it's kind of more complicated than that. I, but, I figured as ba much. <laughs> basically, I did. I got a summer job as a drunken busboy at Select Bistro back in 1989. It was just something that happened. And within a couple of months, two bartenders quit. I just really took to it. They said, hey, do you want to train on the bar? And here I am, a 20-year-old kid, all of a sudden making phenomenal money back in the days before, uh, you know, before bus cycle hit uh, and people were smoking and buying $1,000 bottles of wine and uh, asking a little snotty-nosed kid for advice. <laughs> Big hotshot lawyers. Hilarious, right? <laughs> and, uh, well, it, and that restaurant has not changed, by the way. <laughs> things like I mean I love the food there and I, I love the experience there but you're right like some things don't change in the city in a good way unless yeah. select is, is like that perfect kind of French experience that you it's rare it's hard to get in the city especially it is and and they've been a stalwart and a bulwark against like many hard and troubled times um, in any case I I got that bartending position I ended up uh, when I went traveling to Europe I, I bartended in lots of little places uh, as I was traveling around and, and they hired me back when I came back. So I did my second tour of duty from 91 to 93. And at that point it was just, it had stuck. Right. And when I moved to Paris, I ended up working in, in bars there as well. Uh, and when I came back to Toronto in 97, I did a third tour of duty at Select this time, <laughs> having managed and waitered and bartended, having in increased my knowledge about wine, that sort of thing. Uh, from 97 to 2000, I was the bar manager at Select. So the next thing to do was to open my own place just to get, like I said, get it out of the system, say that you did it, you tried it, and then just 
get back to to life. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have expected that we would have been as successful as we did. In fact, here's a funny one. The the bar that I worked in Paris it was in an anarchist neighborhood called La Butokai. It was uh, uh, every bar in the neighborhood was named after songs by this famous Jean-Baptiste Le Clément anarchist songwriter. And the bar, Le Temps des Cerises, across the street from me, the restaurant, was a co-op restaurant. So imagine 13 servers and chefs, each of them owned one thirteenth of the restaurant. Oh my gosh. Right? So cool. And that was my inspiration and model. These guys would meet once a week and the one guy would uh, put a tryout dish that he said got everyone to eat what do you think someone else would talk about the financials the, the sommelier would would introduce some new wines that he had brought in and they'd all decide together on the direction of the restaurant so when i first opened la palette that was my inspiration i figured okay i've got a business plan where for 20 grand we're going to open a restaurant i'm going to get 10 people in the industry front of house and back of house 10 people pitch in two grand a piece, volunteer two shifts a week, keep your day job, and let's let's start this cool wow. new culture project. So uh, to that end, people came to my house. Uh, we had cooked a bunch of food. Everyone ate the food, drank the wine. And at the end of it said, you're... You're nuts. That's never going to work. This is capitalism. How much do I get paid? I'm like, you You don't get paid. You volunteer two shifts a week. We're doing this for culture. And they're like, yeah, screw you. Sure enough, uh, when the dust settled, it was still just me and Mike Harrington, the chef, and my partner, Maria Litwin. And the three, it was the three of us. And we're like, okay, do you want to still do it? And we did. And, uh, and six months later, everyone wanted to buy in, but it was too late. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and where does Maria and you connect? Where's that? Where does the, how oh, that we, happen? Classic. We met drunk at a party. Okay. Uh, and that was, you know, everyone said that's, that's never going to work. I was living in Poland at the time. So after working in Paris and saving money, I, I had it in my head that I want to write a book. I fancied myself uh, an artist and, uh, and I ended up moving to Poland and I thought I'd be able to have time without working, write a book. Instead, you know, life happened. I ended up I tried to sell my bass guitar, I ended up getting sucked into playing with the blues band that toured around Poland and eventually uh, ran out of money before I could do any significant work on said book. So I ended up uh, teaching English and my wife, who is Polish, uh, is also Australian. Her family fled the country. They were, when she was a, a young, back in 1981, when she was seven years old, her parents got a tip off that they are going to be arrested. They were involved in activity that was trying to bring down the communist government. And so they ended up emigrating to Australia. But she moved back as a teenager, long story short. And her English is better than mine. We were both English teachers uh, in Poland and met drunk at a party. And one thing led to another. And next thing you know, we moved in together. I ended up doing another stint in Paris for a year. And uh, as we were traveling through and living in many countries, I said, let's let's go visit Canada as one of our, our stops in our tour around the world. And uh, like I said, tw that was 20 years ago. As they say, Shemez, behind every good man is an even better woman. Oh, man. Yeah, she's she's talented. She got sucked into this business. Uh, <laughs> like I know uh, the feeling. Know yeah, the feeling. like you wouldn't believe. I'm doing that to my partner. That's for damn sure. <laughs> well, and what's great now, too, is uh, in in that time, I mean, now, the way as it stands today, she does all the behind-the-scenes stuff, the stuff I hate. So she deals with Revenue Canada, deals with the accountants and the bookkeepers. She makes the tablecloths. and She also writes and also is a big fan of the food culture you know you it's like oh, you yeah, were meant yeah. To she, be. she wrote a cookbook uh, yeah. like, but uh, in her actual pursuit she is a contemporary artist and just had a show in calgary this year did a, a residency in japan last year will be going in a couple of weeks to seville uh, to to do another residency there collaborating with local artists so uh it really exciting at the end of the day like i get to sling drinks and do what i love uh, running my restaurant working to last call every day is nothing i love more we almost 
live in different time zones. Imagine I get home from work at uh, four or five in the morning and when I'm sitting having a, a snack and catching up on emails and having a glass of wine at six, five thirty six in the morning, she wakes up to go to yoga and so we get to hang out. We It's like we live in different time zones now. She doesn't have to do the work on the floor, which can be grueling and, and, and I love it. So I get you to do. do what I love. Well, she gets to do what she loves. Let's so. talk about that. I, I need to hear kind of if if I'm coming to your restaurant for the first time, I'm, I'm going to see you right away because your bar is the first thing you bump into when you walk into your restaurant. Sure. You know, what experience am I having when I'm walking in the front doors of La Palette? It's interesting. There's a style of restaurant called the Bouchon Lyonnaise, uh, an owner-run place that's uh, the owner is always there serving quirky, mismatched chairs. Uh, this is what you're walking into. What I love about where we are now too you asked about as we moved how is it different well there's a nice long bar uh, and that bar is open to last call every day it's a favorite haunt of industry regulars so people who work in the restaurant business in places nearby and not so nearby when they're done at midnight one o'clock they come over to us so our kitchen's open late i i like that i, I like that about places like Buenos Aires and Paris that you have places that are open really late. So our bar, our kitchen's open till midnight every day. And between midnight and two, the place fills up with industry regulars who come in a good mood to drink <laughs> with tips burning in their pockets and, yeah. and wanting to catch up with their friends. And it's another great thing is we have that open kitchen. And that's fantastic because traditionally in this business, you often hear about war between front of house and back of house. And our place is not a place where you see that. There's a lot of friendship. There's a lot of laughter. There's a lot of we're, we're in the trench together. We see how hard they're working, what they have to put up with. And, and they see uh, what talents we have as floor staff having to deal with the public. Um, and, and so that's just a great feeling, too. So when you come to our place, you get to have a drink at the bar. Talented bartender will pour you tasters of several different kinds of wine. And when you get to sit at the table, someone else is going to be telling you about the food. You can finish with the nightcap back at the bar. People come in and out, whether they're out on the town for to catch up with their friends or have a snack, or if they're going to uh, one of the many nearby live music venues, it's a it's a great central pit stop for that as well. So, how does that aid in conversation and communication between you and the back of house? Because you're basically looking right across from each other. You know, does that help you? Because you can constantly just turn over and say, "Hey guys, like this is ready to go. Are we ready?" Like, is is that is that the case? Because absolutely. I mean, we're we're not. In in a place where you're punching in something on a computer and a piece of paper spits out of a machine in a basement 200 feet away. They're right there. We're still write chits by hand and spike them and we'll yell out across the bar, fire table four. It's a, it's a, it's a lively scene when you're sitting at a certain spot at the bar. If you're there as a customer, it's restaurant confidential. You hear all the swearing and, <laughs> and all the bitching. It's, it's, it's fun for people who like that kind of lively interaction. Oh, I do. I don't like a quiet restaurant. Quiet no. restaurant, I feel like there's, you hear all the mistakes almost, right? Like when it's too quiet, it's like you're, more aware to what's going on in a, in a bad way. Whereas I yeah. want to be a hundred percent aware. I want to hear when somebody's passionate or when someone's kind of angered by something and how you work together to get the final product. Cause that's what restaurant is. It's an art form. It's, it's not a science, you know, cooking in general, which it can be scientific, but to me, it's, it's all an art. It's a show. Sure. And then when you, if you're running a place, a soulful place, whether it's a restaurant or a bar, a bar is not, just a place to go and have a drink. You could get a six pack and go home and drink if that's the case. It's a community center. It's a place where people meet, where strangers become friends, where friends seal their bonds uh, of closeness even more deeply. Uh, it's There's nothing I love more than to see a couple of people at the bar who don't know each other and start a conversation pour around the shots and they're exchanging phone numbers and they'll come and meet again there the next hey. day. It's a fun thing to do. I love creating situations and circumstances where strangers can meet. And, and you know, my job is to throw a party every day. It could be worse, right? Yeah. It, it, which leads me to, to talk a little bit about uh, things like pedestrian Sundays. People are like, you run a restaurant. Well, how did you get involved in changing your community and starting street events and that sort of thing? And to me, I just see it as a natural extension of the same thing. So whether 
whether I'm throwing a dinner party at my house with a dozen people or throwing a party in my restaurant where we feed a hundred people, where we bring strangers together to laugh and talk and have a good time and perchance to dance even. It's just a, an extension of the same thing spilling out into the street where something like Pedestrian Sundays, you're throwing a party for tens of thousands of people and creating opportunities for strangers to meet and have a good time. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the origins of Pedestrian Sunday Kensington. You know, you obviously have a lot of influence coming from Europe. You know, how does PSK start in Toronto? Well, uh, as I mentioned, yeah, I did have the good fortune of living in Europe for many years where public space is important. A place like Paris, you live in an apartment no bigger than the room is your entire apartment so you're living in 300 square feet you go home to sleep for five hours take a quick shower and get out there into the city and your living room are the cafes and the bars your living room are the public squares the fountains the great plazas of the city and so you you feel invited to make the city itself an extension of where you live and i think that's sorely missing in a, in a place like toronto we're all stuck in our little boxes in our car box we go to the shopping box we go to our how home box uh, we're sitting in front of computers we're sitting in cubicles at offices and we don't have that sense of communal space that we've we've lost that connectivity to each other and car culture definitely fuels that uh, so when you have a neighborhood like Kensington Market that's awesome it's mixed use the streets are narrow and it's human scale there aren't any corporate chain stores people are allowed to let their freak flag fly <laughs> when I wanted to bring attention to the fact that we're just devoting too much of our city streets and too much space to car culture and it's actually choking us uh, it's bad for our personal health it's bad for civic health the health of the city and of course it's bad for global health for the planet we started with a little fun simple thing that was meant to be a one-off a parking meter party so fed the parking meters in front of the restaurant and in each parking spot instead of having a car we still had our vehicle rollerblades bicycle whatever the case may be put the ticket on them and in one parking spot there's a band playing in the other there's free bike repairs i'm giving away gazpacho and we just had this sort of one-off party and this samba band showed up and next thing you know there's 500 people dancing in the street any car coming up augusta had to turn off and the next day people were like that was cool when are we going to do that again when are you going to do something else i had no intention of it but we thought, well, let's see what the neighborhood wants. So we did some informal surveys and got some volunteers together and went knocking on doors. Ended up, ended up basically consulting with over 200 merchants, over 1,000 households in Kensington Market, and came up with this plan. Hey, Sundays. Sundays means sometimes. Sometimes we don't have to watch only mundane things happening. Uh, sometimes our world becomes magical and fun and things that are normally behind closed doors can spill out onto the street. So through a process of consultation, we got our city councillor involved, we got the city various departments involved and gave birth to this thing called Pedestrian Sundays in Kensington Market. And that was 15 years ago. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now it just stuck. And, you know, since then, we've seen things like this happen around the world. So you look to Paris, you look to New York, you look to, to cities around Italy. the world are, are doing exactly this kind of stuff. Sadly, it's still different when we do it in Toronto. Why is that? Because in Toronto, we are stuck in bureaucracy. We have a conservative uh, city that, you know, when I go and pick up the permit, every year they'll say, oh, gee, uh, the permit's going to be 500 bucks now, not 90 bucks. And our city councillor will say, no, give these kids a break. <laughs> uh, we have so many roadblocks. When I pick up the permit, I tell the person who I'm getting it from, you know, the who has your job in Paris, who has your job in the Department of Transportation in New York City, they're organizing these events. They're the ones that are getting entertainment out there. They're the ones that are putting up the barricades and, and making place for kids to ride bicycles. Here, it's us ordinary citizens that are doing it. If you're not going to be the ones organizing it, that's fine. But when we're doing it, stay out of our way. 
don't make it harder for us, right? In the 15 years since we started Pedestrian Sundays, so many other cities are doing it, and we're still stuck with ordinary people organizing it. In other places, it's top-down. It's done by the government. They know this is good for the people. They know it's good for the city. And here, even though we have these best-case uh, scenarios, they it doesn't get, happen on a bigger way. If there's a wrong way of doing something, Toronto will figure it out. <laughs> you, <laughs> you say it's the bureaucracy, and, and I understand that. It's like, how do we allow for more social interaction between our fellow people? Or, you know, how do we allow businesses to, you know, branch out a bit? You're stuck in a lot of ways, which is fine. We understand even with food trucks, it's just so difficult for people to put themselves in the greater picture and, and think, you know, you know, how are we going to not just build us in a community, but how do we build a community that we're in? And I feel like PSK really is a, the is proof is in the pudding. I go every, you know, the f- five months that it's it's running throughout the year. We make an effort to go. You see new people all the time, but you also see your old friends that, you know, you, you get to a point in Toronto where it's just hard to see people uh, make plans for whatever reason. It's a busy, small city. Sure. But you know you're going to bump into them at events like PSK. It's a social gathering that, you know, I, I hate when the winter time comes around because if anything it'd be even cooler to have like a win like a, a winter version of PSK. Sure, yeah. Look at Montreal. They do Nuit Blanche. Nuit Blanche is just around the corner. They do it in the dead of winter in January. They 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 close huge swaths of the streets in summertime uh, in the gay village there so that people can party in the street and bars can spill out and have big patios, things like that. We're still kind of mired in this Presbyterian conservative mentality, which is hard to break. And then another problem that I see, like when we're looking at condofication of Toronto, when we're looking at gentrification, we're looking at property owners buying big, huge swaths of land is, is that, that monoculture bringing suburban style uh, monoculture to the downtown core. Like I'm a big fan of small business, small ma and pa shops are what makes the culture of a city to me, not another strip that has chain coffee store after chain furniture store after chain clone shops that you see all across North America. And somehow, you know, there's there's happy stories. There's good stories. Like in Kensington Market, as you know, we defeated Walmart. Walmart was going to build a, on Bathurst Street there right beside the beer store. Walmart in Canada, 46% of their sales is food. And so we saw, the community saw that this may jeopardize the raw food vendors in Kensington Market. And we came together and we rocked the boat. We got the attention of the city and had a crowdfunding campaign. Uh, we got passionate people behind us and hired lawyers and we beat Walmart. We stopped them from opening. And that's that's good news. But then all this development pressure is still all around in the downtown core as it gets cooler and cooler to be downtown. Uh, moneyed peoples will come in, buy properties and get reliable tenants that are those same chain stores. So we have we have lots of fighting to do to protect the originality and individuality of, of what we've got downtown here. What are your predictions for pedestrian areas in Toronto or pedestrianizing areas in Toronto? What's your prediction? Because you see the success of PSK. You see the food vendors on the streets selling so much more product than they would on any other Sunday. Yeah. I, you know, you always see the, the churro guys, you know, pumping out. <laughs> yeah. They're always the last people to pack up. They're <laughs> always, you know, they're like, how do we stretch that last few minutes? Because they're selling more than they would on any other Sunday. And it, it's funny because sometimes when you go to a merchant and say this is what I want you want my business outside like you want me to do Mm. this and it's funny I'm sure you get pushback from everywhere do you see the success in Kensington you know you've mentioned a possibility of Yorkville like is a perfect place to have another pedestrian you know zone is is there a potential of this because of the success or you know like I mean it's again the proof is in the pudding you go to the bureaucracy and you say hey you know these businesses are making money hand over fist on this Sunday, why aren't we taking this to another neighborhood? And it doesn't have to be downtown Toronto. It could be, you know, a, 
more suburban parts of Midtown? Or, you know, why does it have to be downtown? I mean, I'm speaking in the sense that the bureaucracy might not want it specifically downtown. But do you see this happening somewhere else in the future? Yeah, I mean, it could and should. And when we uh, established the success of this in Kensington Market, we went to Mervish Village at the time before it got boarded up and is about to be knocked down. As we see, we went oh, yeah. to Mervish Village and they said, this is great. The local business association picked it up. They started doing pedestrian Sundays, Mervish Village. Uh, we did it in Baldwin Village. We went to them and it created an ad hoc uh, committee and lots of uh, local businesses and merchants uh, got together with residents, got together with local community centers, and they started it there. And that's just an aside, you know, it has this amazing community building effect where people who normally don't know each other, talk to each other, become pals while they throw this uh, party together. You force them to be pals. Yeah. And so it did happen. But again, it can't stick if it doesn't have top down support. If it's still if it's always done on volunteer power, it risks not having uh, sustainability. Uh, you look to a, a city like Paris. Well, Many years ago, they did similar car-free Sundays in, in a few different neighborhoods. It was overwhelmingly successful. Now, today, you have over 100 neighborhoods doing it. When they have a, a smog alert day, they will make public transit free to get people out of their cars. Pools open. Recently, I was just at a conference last week in Calgary called Walk 21, building walkable cities in the 21st century. The wonderful Swiss woman who's been hired by Paris to revitalize their plazas. They have big eight-lane roundabouts around big public squares like Place de la Nation, Place de la République, uh, Place d'Italie. And they've taken half of them back to serve people and, and kids are out there riding tricycles and people are rollerblading and they shut down major arteries of the city to car traffic so people can get out there and ride bikes and rollerblade. You see this kind of stuff, whether it's in rich countries or poor countries. Next year, I'll be going to Bogota in, in Colombia, where the mayor has ha installed an incredible network of car-free Sundays all across the entire city. Two million people come out in the streets. Uh, he said, well, we can never be rich. We're poor country, but we can be happy. And he does interesting things uh, to combat car culture where you have people park on sidewalks, people take dangerous right turns, run over pedestrians. He's hired an army of a thousand mimes that go out and make fun of drivers for driving poorly that's hilarious and it works right so that's they're creative funny. it is really hilarious creative solutions i can't see that happening here i wish i would you talk about car free days yeah we should have car free sundays in many different neighborhoods across the city we did an open streets thing where you know toronto's good at making pamphlets right so <laughs> open streets toronto god bless them i hope they're i i, I never have made it out yet because it's like eight in the morning until one p.m. in the afternoon that's usually i wake up at noon uh, i haven't seen it but uh, from what i've heard it, it's underwhelming and they they have a tent every hundred meters passing out pamphlets on why cycling is good for you and everyone's out riding their bike somewhere else uh, we have a lot of work to do when it comes to opening people's eyes to 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 how our city could be a different place with a few tweaks, a few quick little changes. We could be Berlin if we wanted to be. Oh, I'd love that. Kreuzberg and Kensington is our Kreuzberg, I always say. Sure, I always yeah. joke that, that Kensington is our version of Kreuzberg. And, and to be honest, I I work in tourism in Toronto. I work in the food industry. I love Toronto. Kensington, and I've been a lot. I'm well traveled. Yeah. Kensington is the best place in the entire world. It's very its own kind of Kreuzberg. It's its own kind of market. The pedestrian Sunday Kensington. We have our own rules almost. Yeah, right? like we like, get to do stuff nowhere else. It's would incredible. It happen? Uh, one of the things that uh, uh, La Palette uh, created uh, uh, was that garden car. So years yeah, ago. You guys created the garden car? Oh, yeah, sure. So we brought in a dead car, cut it open, filled it with dirt, planted tree in it and got local artists to paint it and uh, it was one of those like things that could only happen in Kensington so sure enough the cops towed it away I called to got it towed back and finally city council looked at pictures of it they had to vote on whether it can stay in the public right of way parking authority said we don't care about losing the parking spot can it stay in the public right of way as public art and by then 
it had become such a loved object in the neighborhood that they they couldn't help but say yes. So imagine it's exactly one of those one of those situations where you ask forgiveness rather than permission. If we had asked them, hey, can we bring in a car Never. and put in a parking spot? They'd say no. Happen. But in Kensington Market, we'll just go ahead and do it. <laughs> and, and, and so it's a part of Kensington Market. It, you know how many photos of that car are? Oh yeah. Every foreigner that walks through, they're like, oh, what's this random? I even saw two PSKs ago. You had this incredible live band right where the big kind of side of the house that's kind of there. Yeah, that beautiful uh, Art Deco mural on the head to toe. I think it's like a Japanese, like almost like a geisha is is painted there. I mean, you walk by so so often, you kind of lose what it is. Yeah. But the band was rocking. The yeah. Huge crowd. And the singer left the stage essentially and walked on top of the garden car where cool. people are actually sitting on the car to watch. That car means so much to Kensington without even trying it. It's definitely this like art piece that you kind of wouldn't realize if it was gone, but because it's there, it means so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's definitely hits a lot of marks. So as far as protest goes, it always bothered me that protest in, in, in our place is people getting angry and holding up placards and yelling and, to me, uh, you have to use humor and art to show the other world that is possible. You know, lefties are accused of complaining and don't have solutions. And that thing means so much to so many people. It tr it's not a didactic statement. It transcends boundaries of language. The old ladies love it. Kids love it. Uh, you don't have to speak English to understand it. It means something different to everyone else. Butterflies and dogs love it. And every time you ask someone, what does this mean to you? You'll have a different answer. But it'll always be in that spirit of more parks, less parking. You know, the revolution will not be motorized. This Another city is possible. It, it says those kinds of things in different words. What I love about you, Shemez, is you're not afraid to push back. You you are an advocate, but you follow through. You're 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 definitely a hardworking, and and I admire that. And I want to kind of bring it back to the restaurant a bit because you're familiar with adversity. You're you're familiar with kind of doing things against the norm and the issue of horse meat at La Palette. I really want to talk about because one of my favorite meals I've ever had at La Palette was your quack and track. Yeah, you know, and I mean, I personally enjoy game. Uh, I understand uh, a little bit. Uh, my girlfriend is very uh, pro-sustainability and we talk a lot about, you know, the uh, cattle industry in, in Canada and mm -hmm. a lot about, you know, where our meat is coming from, where our products are coming from. Yeah. And, you know, again, whether it's PSK and the bureaucracy, you know, or it's something like serving horse meat, in your restaurant, yeah, you're and, familiar and, with these kind of, you know, it, situations that you do put yourself into, but you're not afraid to stand up for your rights. You want to talk a little bit about the horse meat the interest in your restaurant? Yeah, I mean, ethical animal husbandry is something that any restaurateur should engage in thinking about and looking at. When we first got horse meat, none of our meat suppliers had it. They had to go out and look for it. Horse meat is common enough in non-English speaking countries. So sure, it's anathema in England, Ireland, in the United States, and two thirds of Canada and Australia. But you go to Europe and it's far more common. It's common in, in France, in Italy, in, in Holland, in places like Japan, uh, Mexico and Quebec even, you get horse meat. So it's not that common here. And it begs uh, you to look a little bit deeper at it. We had some controversy where uh, I guess the Toronto Star had done some big expose about uh, issues surrounding horse meat. When they closed slaughterhouses in the United States, there were many horses that had nowhere to go. Maybe less than healthy horses were finding their way into our food stream. So... We stopped serving horse meat for seven months as I did research. I had lots of free time then. I had just broken my leg, so I, did, I was kind of bedridden. How'd you do that? Uh, it was a cycling mishap. Oh. Uh, yeah, <laughs> things happen. Uh, I still ride my bike. Of course. Day. That's another story. I've only ever seen you on your bike. <laughs> there you go. In various wigs, too. The, the dangers of, uh, of yeah, well, anyway, let's, let's go back to horse meat. We'll, <laughs> we can, <laughs> we'll talk about cross-dressing on bicycles later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, so it was really interesting. And when we 
at the at the conclusion of that, uh, I decided that the horse meat that we are eating is safe. It has been well inspected. It does not contain phenylbutazone, which is sort of like a horse tranquilizer uh, that is commonly used amongst, uh, say, race horses, that sort of thing. Uh, in fact, as far as I know, many of the horses that we're getting uh, are from Amish country in Pennsylvania. So you have animals that have that have lived their lives and and served their purpose to their masters and in death as in life they serve us still <laughs> their their meat is healthy and lean and uh, it is a perhaps a, a, a acquired taste for some and they have to get their heads around the idea of thinking of horses as companion animals as you look deeper if you look at history you look at a papal decree in the 800 900s uh, sometime uh, christians were getting their butts kicked by pagans all around europe europe and the pope said horse meat eating is associated with odin worship and pagan culture and so we must as christians must not eat horse meat but perhaps what the truth behind that was is that these pagans would had tamed the horses and cultivated and then used them in battle and uh, as an animal that was a companion animal to them they would kick other armies butts and when they ran out of food they could eat the horses and keep going and keep fighting and in fact it's funny that in the in the english speaking world that's why we think of horse meat is not something you'd like uh, to eat. Um, more recently, we had, as you know, we had some protesters. We had picketers outside the yeah. restaurant, you know, holding signs up in the air. Uh, that was an interesting situation. We kind of had our own counter protest and I would I would put up signs saying uh, happy hour for horse lovers, free tartar during protests. <laughs> It was interesting to see where the protesters are coming from, and they were from two distinct different camps. On the one hand, you had people from small town Ontario who had horses as pets. They sure. didn't care anything about the ethics of animal eating. They would eat their own weight in, in factory farmed chickens and pigs and mass raised cattle. They right. didn't think anything of it. Right. On the other hand, you had healthy young urbanites who thought that this could be the thin edge of the wedge for their argument. We should stop eating meat altogether. First, it right. starts with cute animals or smart animals, and then maybe people will consider. And I had huge sympathy for their their cause as well. Like I really, get, really thought that they, it, I had, and admired being someone who's used to protesting and, and coming out as a little uh, against the grain. I thought that they were kind of cool, but still, you know, we we took our position and, and our stand in the whole thing. It was funny how the whole after seven months of them picketing every day, how it kind of fell apart. I went to the leader of the horse protesters and I held out a $20 bill and I said, listen, I've got 19 staff. None of them, none of them sell as much horse meat as you do. So I'd like you to take this tip. And he took it. And so then all the young kids who were vegans were completely disgusted by the fact that that would have happened. So they stopped showing up to the protest. And and ultimately, I mean, we've been around for a decade and a half at that point. They could protest every Friday for seven months if they liked. I wasn't going to capitulate to that. Other restaurants not to be named did capitulate to that but it's it's you know it's downtown it's toronto we were a community that is also connected globally uh, we know that other people other countries have different cultures and we have respect for that as well people also don't want to be told what they can eat <laughs> so yeah a lot of people would see those horse protesters and go like oh cool i'm gonna sit in the window and have a horse steak right in the window and inch away and or foie <laughs> you know or other things where we are, believe the practices to be different than what we accustom we are accustomed to here and it's hard to say because as a diner and as an appreciator of animals you know there always is going to be an understanding and i really like you you mentioned you know these horses were at the end of their lives they they provided what they needed to provide when they were alive now they're providing what we what they can provide 
Afterlife. Save a cow, eat a horse. <laughs> uh, uh, Ride a cowboy. <laughs> we had uh, we had protesters for foie gras as well. I bet. I I'm, found, I'm, I'm not surprised. I found this amazing 5,000-year-old Egyptian hieroglyph depicting the gavage, the, the force feeding, because... Uh, uh, Back then, even they noticed that geese and ducks would gorge uh, before migrating. And so we had a fete de foie gras. I met with the protesters and I said, no, we're still going to serve foie gras. I appreciate and respect your opinion, but we're going to do what we want to do. So they picketed out front. I put in the 5,000-year-old hieroglyph on my menu, and you could have a terrine of foie gras, you could have seared foie gras, you could super, you could add a medallion of seared foie gras to your bison steak or horse steak. And when I met with them, I made buttons fight for your right to pate. Oh, terrible. Oh. Right? I'm not a dad, oh. but I can make dad jokes. <laughs> uh, and, and we sold five times as much foie gras as we did before they started protesting. So they had to kind of walk away from that. Be careful who you mess with, right? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm all for protesting. You know, you got to fight for your right, whatever your right and whatever your fight may be. And you have to admire both sides. And what I like about you is you're not afraid to have a conversation. And, and I feel like a lot of protesters, I mean, right behind our studios is a pig plant that we're all pig processing plant that we're all familiar with and i i enjoy pig products and like you know food is about knowing where your sources are you know what your food is eating before you're eating it there's a lot of important things that definitely these protests bring to light and it's good to know that you're for the fight you know and and fight is is a tough word you're for the conversation and that's important to know that somebody in your position whether queen west bia you know or a restaurateur you're willing to extend yourself to these people. And that says a lot about how much thought you're putting into your menu and how much thought you actually care about the community. And that's really important. And I think, you know, people need to understand that you can protest. You know, you know, everyone has the ability to, to speak freely in this country. Uh, but, you know, it, it's amazing what... You know, in the end of the day, people are still going to do what they're going to do. And as long as the what you're doing is involved in the conversation with the other side, I think that's the most important thing. You know, protesting's great, but conversations are better. And it's so important that you're able to make that connection with these people. Yeah, the spirit of debate, a healthy spirit of debate is Correct. something that I really appreciate. I feel like we here sometimes end up spending too much time agreeing with each other oh, I, oh yeah you know, i agree i'm not that way no like for, you know, for me french cafe culture is about arguing it's about debating uh the bar i worked in paris uh, there were two guys that would show up every day one guy was an anarchist with a mohawk a leather jacket the other one was a businessman with a briefcase they always they they would meet at the bar every day and argue and it was fantastic the the businessman would be why should you work when you can live off the backs of our taxes that we generate and the the punk rocker would be like you greedy businessman you will not rest until you've turned every leaf on every tree into money and and then the drinks would be low and they'd be like, oh, are you having another beer? No, actually, it's aperitif time. We should have a pastis. Ah, yes, that sounds excellent. Bartender, two more pastis. Anyway, where were we? You bastard. <laughs> they would continue arguing and shake hands and go home to eat dinner and be there again. The As next day. you should. And I love that. I love Ugh. that about that, that spirit of cafe culture, that spirit of revolution and debate fueled by caffeine and alcohol. Let's close this interview off. I want to talk just a little bit more about La Palette. I want to know, you know, what are the staples that every French menu has to have? What does La Palette do the best? I loved Quack and Track. Uh, I mentioned before Quack obviously being your duck confit and Track being the horse. I mean, I love your combinations. I love that you're not afraid to, you know show that your half of the conversation is in your menu you know you're not afraid to to show off you know these are what we're bringing to the toronto palette what do you think that la palette does the best well honestly it's of course it's meat now at any table of six people you're gonna have people with special dietary needs and restrictions you're gonna have people that are vegetarian or piscivores and i think that's really important 
to be sensitive to that in this day and age, especially our menu says, uh, are you vegan? Are you on a weird cleanse? We can accommodate any dietary restrictions. So we're, we're happy to do that. But what we are proud of and what we're good at is, is, is meat. So our duck confit uh, is fantastic. As you mentioned, the quack and track, you can pair the duck confit with horse tenderloin. We'd like to have specials on right now. We've got venison that works great as a tartare as well. Uh, so, Definitely those kind of classics. We're getting our oysters from Rodney's Oyster Bar. We're, we've got foie gras on the menu. What I love, though, what I think is exciting for me, and, I, and I'm always, when I'm training new staff, I show them, like, there's that broke student couple that has saved all their money so they can come and have a nice night out. And for a prefix at 35 bucks for 80 bucks, 100 bucks, a couple can have a great three-course meal and, and a, a couple of drinks. And, and they're sitting in the same place. Right beside them, there's a baller couple who's having the foie gras and the venison, and they're having cocktails, and they're having wines from the reserve list. And that couple's spending 400 bucks on dinner. And they're in the same place, and they're having the same experience and the same good time they're even talking to each other and getting into a conversation i think it's really important and what i'm proud of is that we have a place where whether you're 20 something or 40 something or 80 something it's an ambience it's an environment that you feel at home and whether you are dressed up or dressed down whether you're not so well off or you've got to expendable cash you're still in the same place, you're getting treated the same way by the servers, and you're having the same good time. And I think that's important uh, in a place where all too often you will fit in a certain conformed age group or ethnic background or economic background, and that will determine where you go. I think that's great about our city, and I think that's one of the things I'm proud of about La Palette is that it doesn't matter what background you're from, what walk of life you're from, you come in and you feel comfortable and you you get treated well and you leave feeling warm and fuzzy and it's been a great time for you. I, I love that. And I, I love the little taste of France that you get on Queen West, which is already a already a very casual experience and you can just walk in and be transformed into a whole bistro experience which is very limited in Toronto. I want to thank my guest today, Shemez Amlani from La Palette. Check them out. You just have to listen for the the gypsy jazz, the Balkan music in the distance sometimes and you'll you'll follow your ear and check them out on Queen West and definitely head out to uh, Cameron House afterwards for uh, some free live music. It's the best neighborhood. It's one of the, the oldest kind of go-tos for anybody that's in the downtown core. Thank you so much for coming, Shemez. I, I really appreciate what you're doing for, you know, pedestrians, uh, cyclists, for people who believe in their product. It's really important. Thank you for coming on today. You know, th thank you. Thank you for taking the extra time to go deeper and see beyond uh, two-dimensional, punchy uh, one-liners. Uh, thank you for helping me explore depths and, and getting me excited about it because sometimes you forget what why it is you do what you do or say what you say and 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 uh, you you have a great way of of drawing out stories and and showing what a great place we live in thank you for that <laughs> thanks shamaz <laughs> this has been another episode of speaking duck on never sleeps network thanks shamaz cheers thank you <laughs> Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com.